as the season of Advent, a time when we look forward with the desperation that Israel felt in many ways to the coming of a Savior. So as we think about desperation, as we think about this waiting, this longing to be rescued, I want you to go back with me, not all the way to Israel's time yet, but to World War II, 1943. There's a man named Louis Zamperini. <laughs> he was at sea for over 47 days, the longest time, one of the longest times anyone had ever been adrift at sea. He was there with two companions. They had all been shot down. They were in the Pacific Ocean in Japanese territory. There wasn't land or a human being for as far as the eye could see. They were desperately alone. They were desperately needy. They were starving. The sun was beating their bodies, burning them. They had salt sores. Their lips began to swell so big that they started to cover their nostrils. They were in a desperate condition. The only water they had was the water they caught when the rain fell into their raft. The only food they ate was when weary albatross birds settled on the raft and they were still long enough for them to catch them and eat them. They were desperate. They wanted to be rescued. They needed rescue. Death was at the door. Two of them, Louis Zamperini and the pilot, had injuries from the plane crash. Broken ankle, broken ribs, head lacerations, concussions. They were in bad shape to begin with before the 47 days at sea. But the third man had no injuries. But he was also growing worse than any of the others. He seemed to just get slower and slower. He didn't contribute to any of the work. It seemed like there was nothing driving him forward. He was just laying down to die. He didn't make it. The other two did. Why? Why was this third man languishing? He had no hope. He had no hope. He gave up almost as soon as they hit the water. He saw no future for himself. He didn't know if, if he lived, what was there? He didn't think that there would ever be a rescue. He didn't think that there would ever be help. He saw this desperate situation as the only condition he would ever see. He had no hope for a future. Hope is our theme for the Advent season. We need to feel the desperation that the Israelites felt. We need to feel the desperation of needing to be rescued, desperately needing to be rescued. And so as we look back with the Israelites in Isaiah 34, before the first coming of Christ, that wonderful Advent, the Christmas we look forward to, to celebrate, that looks back 2,000 years ago, as we wait for this Christmas commemoration, let's remember how desperate the Israelites were and also how desperate still in many ways we are as we wait for the second coming of Christ. As we look back in the history of Israel, turn, turn with me to Isaiah 35, but we're going to go back to chapter 1 and make a very brief move through to catch us up to where we are in 35. In Isaiah chapter 1, God's warnings began. Israel had been stubborn, stiff-necked. They refused to follow God. They refused 
to uh, give up their false religions, their idolatries. They refused to stop trusting in man when they could trust in Almighty God. They had rebelled and turned away from God, the same situation we all find ourselves in as soon as we enter this world. Surely we're sinful from our mother's wombs. In Isaiah 1, the warning is given that the capital city, Jerusalem, would be left. It says, the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. They were facing utter devastation, being wiped out. What hope did they have? Well, the oracles of judgment continued for 34 chapters. Israel's story is rebellion. And when they rebelled, they were exiled. They were taken away from the promises of God. And right now, God is warning Israel that Assyria would come, a great empire full of war, and destroy the northern kingdom. Then, the southern kingdom of Israel will be taken by this horrible kingdom called Babylon. A frightening, terrible place. Powerful. Jerusalem would be sieged. It would be destroyed. Men, women, and children would die. The rest, taken from their home, taken away from the promised land, taken away from the promises of God and his protection and blessing. They'd be taken by horrible force. They were desperate. But Israel had tried time and again. They could never succeed in following God. They seemed to commit themselves to following. They would covenant with their God. Every time they failed. And every time judgment was threatened and then brought upon them. In Isaiah 34, we see the climax of judgment. This is the chapter just before our chapter today. And God gives a picture of what will become of any of us when we are apart from God. This is a picture of worldwide devastation with Israel as the center point. The picture describes Israel as devoted to destruction and given over to slaughter. It says that evil nations will devour them. There will be death, carnage, mountains flowing with blood, rot, stench, the clear streams are turned to a poisonous pitch and sulfur, and there would be a burning, unquenchable fire whose smoke will rise forever. Cities are destroyed, and the rich and fertile land will become a haunt for unclean animals. This is a picture of a place that none of us want to be. It's really a picture looking forward to hell, the eternal fire. The fire there in 34 would last forever. But it's also showing them this is what's happening when you turn away from the holy God, when you rebel against, against the God who alone is good. You'll find nothing but evil. So this is where Isaiah 35 comes into the story. Finally, after 34 chapters, we see the shift from judgment to hope. So long they had been sitting there, a shelter in a vineyard, waiting for someone to come to help. They'd been following their own devices, sinning in every way. They'd been beaten by 
war and oppression, but now a picture of hope. As we read this Isaiah 35 picture of hope, I want you to, as we read, look for the imagery. There's going to be two contrasting images. Images of utter desperation on the one hand, and then immediately followed in the same sentences and the same statements by images of beauty, of glory, of majesty, of human flourishing and joy. Let's look, watch for these two contrasting sorts of images as we read Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What joy, what hope from the depths of despair to the heights of glory. That's the pictures we get here. The lowest of tones to the highest of tones. This is what God is doing in this world for us now. This is what God has done in this world when he became a man in Christ Jesus, the God-man, to save us from our sin and to usher in a time of blessing when our hearts will be transformed first and ultimately the entire world will be transformed as a place of glorious dwelling for his people. He has come to save us. This is our hope. So did you notice those contrasting images? Did you see some of these uh, horrible pictures and then wonderful pictures standing right by, side by side with one another? In the first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2, we see the desperate images of dry desert wilderness. The wilderness and the dry land, 
the desert. What would Israel have pictured when they heard this imagery of wilderness and desert? We need to get a picture of how desperate these, these pictures are. They knew the wilderness, just southwest of Israel, where Moses had led their forefathers through the desert for 40 years. What is that place like? Well, water was very scarce. The hot sun beat on the dry dirt. The desert dirt, it's not rich like farmland. It's pale, sandy, and hard. There's barely a trace of vegetation or life, except for something that's quite yellow and almost dead. It's a picture of dry, desperate lifelessness. Not really suitable for life. Not really suitable for human habitation. Later in verse 7 of Isaiah 35, it describes burning sand. This is not the sort of place you go for a lush vacation. This is a horrible, desperate, dry, burning place. Incredibly uncomfortable. Only death lives there. But before we even get past the end of verse 2, in Isaiah 35, right here, it says, The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So even here, there's a hint that there's something beyond just the desert that they're, they're worried about. What is it that they're worried about? Yes, they're worried about the physical conditions, but they're also worried about the desperation of being apart from the God who created us, who we were made for, who we find our joy in, the only source of joy and perfect delight. They were estranged from God, and not only estranged, enemies of God. But the hope here is that they shall see the glory of the Lord. Who is they? The people of God, Israel, us, all of us who believe and follow the way of Christ. So they shall see the glory of the Lord. There's a deeper meaning here. God will literally renew and refresh the earth. This is true. But more importantly, the dry desert is an image for our souls. Our souls are dry and desperate apart from God. Both are pictured here. The dryness and desperation of physical life that is under the curse and the dryness and desperation of a soul that thirsts for God. Both are there and both are important. We need both. We have to have the physical to survive bodily, but without the spiritual, even if we survive bodily, it's as if we're dead even while we live. So these pictures of both spiritual and physical salvation, total salvation for us as humans, give us a hope that is greater than anything that a government could offer us, greater than anything that a mere human being could offer us. They can never satisfy the hungers of our soul. God can. And no one can satisfy the physical needs as abundantly as this beautiful picture that God has given us in this hope makes it all the more amazing when verse 4 says, Behold your God, and then he will come and save you. In every way, God will save us. He has come, and he is coming again. In the last section, verses 8 through 10, it still describes a physical way. There's a physical highway being described here, but it's in 
incredibly evident as soon as we start reading this that it's not just the physical that God is talking about here in verses 8 through 10. It's called the way of holiness to begin with. Holiness, a spiritual condition, being set apart for God. Also says that the unclean shall not pass over it. This is a place that is for the redeemed and the ransomed to walk. Isaiah 35 is describing the remaking of a devastated land, and this will happen in the future. There will be a new earth when Christ comes back. It will blossom in this paradise like Eden. But the poetry of Isaiah also describes the glorious power paradise as an outward sign of the absolute beauty of what God is doing in our hearts, bringing us to himself. We just recently heard in Brett's sermon on John chapter 7 how Jesus went back and forth between images of physical water and of spiritual thirst and Christ slaking that physical thirst or that spiritual thirst. John 7, 37 through 38 says, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here in Isaiah 35, then, we find that same sort of double hope pictured for those who trustingly follow Christ. The physical will be satisfied. The spiritual will be satisfied. It's a double hope. But somebody out there might be thinking, well, you know, I'm kind of a spiritual person. I'm really not that desperate spiritually. I feel pretty good about myself. Well, this is part of the spiritual condition. It's contrary to the truth of what Scripture says about us. Apart from Christ, we are absolutely dry and desert wastelands in our spirits. The Bible tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It tells us that we are dead in our sin. It tells us that we are absolutely hopeless. We just don't see it. We think we can fill that with so many things, but in the darkness, in the quiet, when we really start looking at our lives, listening to that voice that we don't want to hear, maybe it's our conscience, maybe it's the Spirit of God bringing conviction, we all know that we are in a desperate state and keep us up at night. The Bible is true. We are in need. See, I'm a type 1 diabetic, and oftentimes when you slip slowly into something that you just get so used to it, you don't understand how bad off you are until you're right next to death. When I was first diagnosed at 13, I was a diabetic for five or six months at least before that. Hadn't been taking insulin, hadn't been treated. My blood sugars were through the roof, but it was over a five or six month period of time that I got there. I was critically dehydrated when I went to the hospital. The doctors were questioning how in the world I even walked in the door. They said I should have been in a coma already, but they were afraid that I could slip into one any moment. And I was really near death. I was so sick that I was about to die, but I didn't realize it. I was just on a family vacation before we came home and I went to the doctor. I was at Cattle Lake in East Texas and I was canoeing in Cattle Lake. I thought I was really tired. I didn't know why I was so tired, but I knew I was 13 now and all the teenagers I knew slept all day. So I was like, well, I must just be really sleepy. I'm getting old. And you know, older people say they're tired all the time. So this is just, this is what happens. 
So I'm just old now. I'm 13. But despite that, I was also drinking anything I could find any moment I could. I was so dehydrated. I was spraying myself with a fan, you know, one of those spray fans all the time to try to keep myself somehow feeling moisture of some sort. My family started to get alarmed, and that's why they took me to the doctor. I had no idea that there was something wrong. I did feel sick, but I thought maybe it was a stomach bug or something I just couldn't shake. When they took me to the doctor, there's the diagnosis, near death. For all of us, when we think that we're okay apart from God, when we go to the true doctor, when we go to the word of God, it will give us our diagnosis apart from him, death. That is our diagnosis, not just near death, but death. We are desperate. We are needy. We are under the coming wrath of God. In the imagery of Isaiah, spiritually speaking, we are desperately thirsty in a dry and desert, desolate wilderness. We're spiritually sun-blistered, sun-baked. Our skin is dry and burned. Our lips are swollen. We are in a dry desert wilderness without water. We are thirsting after something. And we know this. We all chase after something, anything to satisfy that thirst. We need the water that will heal us. And yet we go to so many things that don't satisfy. We try relational love. We try who knows, even crime sometimes, the adrenaline rush, anything that will make us feel alive and like something is happening, exciting, and moving forward in our life. We're looking for a hope for the slaking of our thirst. And who would blame us? Because our souls are in a desert wasteland. I don't know if you've ever been in a place that's that dry, that there's no water even in the air. But even as you need this this slaking of your thirst, even as you need help, at the same time as we are in need, as we feel the need to open our mouths and catch moisture, and all that we get is hot air that's dry, and sand is the only thing that blows in. And then we feel like we need to swallow to get that out of our mouth, but in that situation, we just can't, because we can't even get enough moisture in our mouth to swallow. We're in that desperate a situation. But then when the water comes, when the water comes, verse 6 and 7, what if what that, those verses tell us happened to us? Waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Can you imagine the joy you'd feel? After being thirsty for so long, you finally get a drink. Can you imagine that joy, the total contrast, being in total dryness and suddenly going to a place of abundance and moisture and rain and richness? You would feel so satisfied. Your thirst is gone forever. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. When you come to Christ, your thirst would be satisfied forever. Can you imagine that? Well-nourished, whole, at peace. Everything is settled and perfect. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall become abundant and rejoice with singing. The glory of Lebanon given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. 
they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Those are beautiful images of our thirst being quenched. But as we move past these images, we want to look at what is happening to us, though. Christ has come. But what about all of us who live between the times? Christ has come, but he is coming again. What does this life look like? When we look around, we don't necessarily see everyone completely satisfied in God. Believers, I see believers who are blind, who can't walk. There's people who are struggling with sin and can't seem to get past it. Why is this? Why are we so desperate? Well, if you look at uh, verses 5 and 6, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. If you look at that and you think about your situation now, you wonder, well, why aren't the lame leaping? Why don't we see this? But when you look back to Jesus' time, when he came the first time, he did in fact heal. He did, in fact, give the blind men's sight. And John the Baptist had the same questions and doubts. John the Baptist was in prison. He thought that Christ was going to come back and settle everything, rule the world, and give Israel the top-notch spot, and then the whole world would be full of this wonderful picture of glory and hope and beauty that everyone had longed for. But when Christ came, John was thrown in prison, and Jesus was slipping away from the crowds that were trying to stone him. So... John had doubts. He sent from prison to Jesus. He sent his disciples, and they asked him in Matthew chapter 11. They asked him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus then alluded to this passage, the promises here, as well as a few other scriptures. And he said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus said to John, you want the end to come, and you want it to be glorious and beautiful, and all of sin to go away, all of oppression to go away, every illness and infirmity to go away. But here's what Jesus is telling John. I have come, look around you, Look at the evidence. Yes, I am fulfilling these scriptures. When Jesus came the first time, he brought the kingdom of heaven into the world. And we saw glimpses of his glory, of the glory of what will still be when he comes back. Because when he comes back, there will be no one of his people who does not walk and sing joyfully and with no illness or infirmity to hold them back. When he comes back, everything will be settled. When he came the first time, he did heal but it's not complete yet. So we live between the times. He's already finished the work on the cross. He defeated death forever when he died on the cross. When he was resurrected, he's guaranteed our future resurrection bodies, glorious and full of joy in him. He defeated death on our behalf. And if we would only trust him, he has placed us on that highway of holiness where we walk even now. And we have something that others do not that will see us through the desperation of these times. We have hope. The same thing that that third man on the raft did not have. The reason he just languished and died, 
That's exactly where we will be if we do not put our eyes squarely on the hope that is set before us. If we don't look to Jesus who has finished and perfected our faith and that we know that he is coming back for us, he will not leave us here, but he is going to rescue us. He has rescued us and he is going to bring that rescue to completion someday soon. If we don't have our hope fixed there, we will be languishing. We will wonder what is our purpose? Why am I working? Why am I laboring every day? Why does nothing seem to ever get better? We will never understand and we will die. But with hope, we know the future and we know that the rescuer is coming. He will come and save us. He is coming. That's why in verse three, we see this admonition to us to strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees, to say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. We're told to be strong, to be strong and, and trust. Our God is coming. He will defeat every enemy. So we are, we are to be strong. That whole picture of strengthening weak hands is a picture of weakness brought on by fear. So uh, it's kind of like our common English statements, like knocking knees. I don't want to knock my knees up here in front of everybody, but knocking knees, you know, that, that's just, that shows fear. Your, your legs are weak and you, you just can't even seem to walk straight or, or hold yourself up well. You're afraid, incapacitated, or maybe chattering teeth. That's another image we use a lot. They're saying strengthen weak hands. It's like you, you look on at the army coming to destroy you and whew, your hands grow weak. You just can't seem to hold them up anymore. But Isaiah is telling us to strengthen our weak hands. Why? Behold your God. He will come and save you. He will bring his recompense with him and he will save you. There is no reason to be afraid there is no reason because we have a savior, a victor, who has saved us and who will save us again. He's finished the work. Okay, I wouldn't normally uh, suggest Bono as a theologian to be studying, uh, but U2 has an amazing song and I think it fits this situation well. Because we, we do get discouraged sometimes when we look around and there's just, seems like there's no hope. Seems like the church is languishing. It seems like our own sin is getting the better of us. And we always feel like there's just something I'm missing. I need to find some kind of, maybe the next spiritual Christian fad or something to fill my heart. That, don't do that. Look for what the scriptures say. Do not go beyond what is written. But what Bono says in this U2 song from a little while back, it feels like yesterday because I'm old, but he says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one. Well, yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This is our condition. Here in the middle, we, sh we haven't found home yet. We should be longing for that home. We haven't found physical wholeness yet. We should be longing for that physical wholeness. We haven't found what we're looking for. We know what right is deep in our hearts because eternity is placed there. And it is not what we see around us. 
we should not be sinning. We should not be struggling. We still haven't found what we're looking for. We haven't seen Christ face to face. That is what we're looking for. When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We will be whole. We still haven't found it. But in this time, as we're pressing toward our goal to win the prize, hope will press us forward. Hope will give us strength. Strengthen our weak hands and cast away our fear. And we will press to see the glory of God, little by little, reflected even now. As we saw in Christ's first coming, we saw little pictures of healing. Well, they were big pictures, actually. Big pictures of healing. Big miracles. And we saw what God was doing for us. Now, we as Christians living between the times, we get to look forward and get that image and that vision of our heavenly home. And we get to work to see glimpses of it coming even through our own lives. Working with God's strength, not ours, because we've learned what road that ends in. Our own strength will leave us. God's strength will get us there. And so in all of this, we have hope in Christ, what he has done and what he is going to do. And we work to see his kingdom coming even now because of this hope that drives us forward and gives us strength and purpose. And that brings us to this final section, the way of holiness, described in verses 8 through 10. Describes a wonderful highway where the redeemed walk. It's a pathway of salvation. This highway could have many different meanings, and I think it actually does carry many different meanings. Generally, in poetic form, it is a picture of God's salvation of his people, his mighty works of salvation. This highway could describe the highway that led the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt when Moses led them through the Red Sea, a powerful delivery of a people in slavery. This highway could describe the path that God was going to make to save the people from Babylon in their captivity just after Isaiah's time. Could describe that highway. He did lead them out. He brought them back to the promised land. A highway could also describe this path that all of us as followers of Christ are on, a path that's leading us away from sin and towards the very pleasures of God. The highway could also describe that final path where we will be led home to see those blossoming deserts, the joy that will never end. In every instance, this highway, this way of holiness for the ransomed, for the redeemed, for those who are cleaned by the cross of Christ, it's only for us who believe, who trust, who have given up on our own power and are trusting in him alone. And this highway that we walk on in trust and faith, it is leading us home. It's bringing us there. It's a spiritual picture. If you, if you can only imagine if this, this road were visible and in front of you, and as you look back, you see the devastation and ruin of sin, the misery of judgment, but you look ahead and you see the glory of the blossoms of the water that will quench your every thirst. This is the way of holiness prepared for us. And in the end, the spiritual aspect of God's saving highway takes center stage. 
the very end of Louis Zamperini's life, we see a picture of how the physical comforts will never satisfy us. We have to have God save our hearts. Louis Zamperini got off of that raft. He wasn't exactly rescued. He was taken captive by the Japanese. And he went from 47 days on a raft at sea to the custody of a Japanese captain who tortured and beat him for years. Every day in that miserable torment, Louis Zamperini thought, if I ever get out of here, I am going to come back and find this captain and I will kill him for his atrocities. That's all he could think about. That was the hope that drove him forward. Louis Zamperini did not have the hope of Christ. The things that drove him forward were anything from mere optimism to the desire for vengeance. But eventually he was rescued. He didn't die in the POW camp either. But after he was rescued, he went home and it still wasn't right. He was well fed. He had plenty to drink. He had all the comforts of home. He was with his wife. It just wasn't what he was looking for. He was angry. He was bitter. He was depressed. His heart just sunk day by day. He didn't he was finally losing hope. Why, why should he even go on? He was still plotting to find that Japanese captain. Maybe that's what was keeping him going. But one day his wife, knowing his desperate condition, took, just talked him into going to a Billy Graham conference. There he heard the gospel. He heard that Jesus Christ had come to save him that despite all of Louis's sins, all the guilt that he had felt, Christ was killed in his place to suffer the punishment that he deserved. He heard of the grace of God that doesn't require us to work our way to heaven, but heaven has come down to get us. And we trust and our hearts are changed forever. And Louis's heart was changed forever. He believed, and suddenly the desperate dryness of his spiritual condition began to blossom little by little. And soon he had the chance to meet that Japanese captain. It was a test of faith. But really, Louis didn't see it that way. As soon as he heard that he was going to get the chance to fly all the way to Japan to meet this captain, the only thought in his head was not, well, what weapons am I going to take and how am I going to sneak them in? That wasn't his thought. All he wanted to do was he wanted to go and look at that captain who had tortured him for years. He wanted to look him in the eye and he wanted to say, I forgive you. A heart that has let go of trying to find his own way, to try to find his own vengeance. His heart let go because Christ had freed him from all of that. His desert heart was blossoming. His thirst was quenched. He had Christ and his heart was changed. He had the love of Christ poured on him and he was pouring the love of Christ out. He had the forgiveness of Christ poured on him and he was pouring the forgiveness of Christ out. This is how we survive in this time of desperation. Government will never form a utopia. Our human efforts will never make this place a place that we really want to live in long term. There will always be crime and murder 
There will always be devastation of sin. But he will come and save us and set it right. And in the meantime, he is pouring his love on us. He is quenching our thirst little by little until we get there and we are drowned in the waters of salvation. It's going to be a wonderful time. Life abundant. And we look forward to that. We have the hope that will pull us forward as we take drinks from the waters of Christ's well and finally arrive at the ocean of his blessings. We are pressed forward to not only drink, but to pour it out on others. So, as we take the Lord's Supper, let's remember that he has come to save us. But also, he is coming back. And when he comes back, no lion shall be there, in verse 9, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. One day soon, we will feel our last sorrow. One day soon, we will sigh our last depressed sigh because he's coming. Let's look forward as we wait for that salvation where our hearts will blossom fully, where our world will blossom fully, and he will take us home to joy that will never end. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. I pray that if there are any who have not felt your salvation, who have not come to you to drink of the waters that you offer, Lord, I pray that you would help them to turn away from everything in this world and that you would cause them to trust in you alone. You are the source of joy, and I pray that you would help them to find joy, truly. And Father, for those of us who have believed, I pray that you would strengthen us. Strengthen us with your hope. Help us to believe that you are coming. Help us to believe these images of glory and blessedness. And Lord, thank you that you are with us as we wait. That you have not left us alone. That your spirit never leaves us. Even when we sin, your cross covers us. You take our punishment. You heal us. And you stick close to us with joy that is so great. But Lord, hasten the day when that joy will be complete and we see you face to face. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.